We probably didn't anticipate the massive growth with solar. Other countries, particularly China, got out of the gate much faster. And I just want to be clear, we want American manufacturing, but they have to be able to compete. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Dauenhauer. Today we are talking about solar, specifically two trade cases that could affect the future of one of Energy's greatest success stories. Ten years ago, you didn't see solar farms. They produced about as much electricity as a single coal plant produced in a day. But last year, solar farms produced over 50 gigawatt hours of electricity, more than 60 times what was made in 2007. This was largely made possible by the affordability and efficiency improvements of photovoltaic cells. PVs were first demonstrated by a French physicist in 1839 and were less than 1% efficient. The first practical cells were demonstrated by a trio of inventors at Bell Laboratories in 1954. Efficiency, 14%. Flash forward to the mid-2000s at the dawn of the current boom. Efficiency was still in the teens and the cost per watt for a cell was almost $9. In the decade that's followed, the prices dropped to less than a dollar and efficiency has risen to the mid-20s. The industry has a term for this phenomenon, which they call Swanson's Law. It states that PV prices drop 20% every time industry capacity doubles. So the more PVs we make, the cheaper it gets. It's probably no surprise that while PV cells might have been invented in New Jersey, they're not mass-produced in the Garden State. Jiangsu is a long way from Jersey, yet China is the undisputed market leader in global PV manufacturing. And that's where the story begins. In 2012, the Department of Commerce found that China was illegally dumping solar cells on American soil. One of the casualties of these low prices was Solyndra. Remember them? As a result, these Chinese manufacturers were hit with a 30% tariff. A year ago this month, Suniva, an Atlanta-based PV manufacturer, declared bankruptcy. And then a week later, they filed trade complaints against international competitors with the International Trade Commission. Suniva is Chinese-owned, but whatever. A month later, SolarWorld, an Oregon-based manufacturer, joined the case. Last September, the U.S. ITC found in favor of Suniva and SolarWorld, and in January, the Trump administration slapped a 30% tariff on panels, dropping each subsequent year for five years. This case was first brought to my attention last fall when a local solar farm developer told me they had real concerns about the future of new solar farm builds and their affordability. To say the rest of the industry was not on board with this decision was an understatement, and our guest today speaks for those other companies. At the time of this episode, we have new steel and aluminum tariffs, a possible multi-industry round of tariffs on China. It's a busy time. For the solar industry, it's strangely ironic that an energy source that is a purely domestic source of power has owed a huge part of its success to foreign components. Can it thrive in an increasingly less global world? Time will tell. Our guest today is Dan Witten, Vice President of Communications for SIA, the Solar Energy Industries Association, based in Washington, D.C. SIA is quite simply the voice of the American solar industry, and the industry, for the most part, 
openly opposes these tariffs. But as a group with a thousand companies in all 50 states, it's challenging to make everyone happy, which we'll discuss. I was also interested in exploring the political dynamics of tariffs and free trade. Until the current administration, I thought a tenet of being a Republican was free and open trade, global capitalism, if you will. And I think you'll get a kick out of the answer I got when we explore what the political landscape in D.C. looked like when America chose a true political outsider. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dan Witten. We're here with Dan Witten, Vice President of Communications for the Solar Energy Industries Association. And Dan, let's start from the top. I think it's pretty much understood that most of the solar panels come from overseas. And how did the United States initially, you could say, lose the market on solar panels? How did that come to be? The United States were the primary inventors, developers of solar energy. We have always won the innovation game when it comes to new technologies, and that was no different with regard to solar energy. I think that there's this perception that we made a massive investment in manufacturing infrastructure and then got beat on it. What happened was that we probably didn't anticipate the massive growth that was going to happen with solar. And other countries, particularly China, got out of the gate much faster and were producing panels at scale much faster. And so we never really built the infrastructure that was needed to meet this burgeoning demand that we're experiencing now. Why do you think we didn't do that? I think companies make decisions about what they want to invest in, and there weren't enough companies that made the decision to invest in solar manufacturing at the scale that was needed, particularly for utility-scale panels and cells. Do we believe that there might have been unfair trade practices, things like maybe other countries were giving subsidies out to help boost up that industry, or did it really just come down to these guys got the scale and they could build them cheaper than we could? It's certainly the case that China and Taiwan were found to be dumping under the anti-dumping and countervailing duties requirements. And so they have been paying tariffs on their panels for about four years now. That is an issue. Yeah. Dan, help me understand this a little bit better. You said that there were found to be dumping against China and Taiwan, and so they have been paying tariffs. And then and even Solar World have their issue. To me, that sounds like, okay, that's already been sorted out with what you'd call the main offenders in this case. So... What beef do Solar World and Ceneva still have if it's already been found that there's been dumping and those guys have been charged? What's still left yeah. to sort out? It's been an amazing case, an amazing process. And essentially what you had was two companies that were on the brink of extinction. In Ceneva's case, they pretty much are extinct. And as a last-ditch effort, Ceneva initially filed a claim under Section 201 of Trade Act that basically bails out American companies if they're unable to compete. And SolarWorld joined them subsequently. And essentially, the difference between the anti-dumping and countervailing duty suit and the Section 201 case is that in Section 201, it imposes tariffs on all panels from anywhere in the world. So we can't compete in the international market, or we haven't been able to compete in the international market. Now, they can lay out some exceptions for certain countries, for example, developing countries. But in general, every country 
is hit with these tariffs. And there isn't an issue of doing anything illegal. There's not an allegation that anybody did anything wrong under 201. It just is protection for U.S. companies. These two companies, SolarWorld and SunEva, did they ever approach you before initiating this suit? I'm not sure that they came to us before initiating the suit. There wasn't a whole lot of consultation in advance of their filing the suit. And what's it been like since they filed the suit? Did you guys ever approach them like, hey, we have some interest here? What's your communication with those guys been like? Yeah, I can't really get into all the nuts and bolts of the communications among the different parties. But, you know, we see them at conferences. I wouldn't say that there was dead silence among the parties involved. You know, we know who they are and they know who we are and we've talked. Do you guys have other domestic panel manufacturers in your membership during this whole episode? We do. We do have some domestic producers as members. And there aren't domestic producers that do business on a scale that some of the foreign producers do, but they are several of them are members. And you took a position, of course, against this suit. It's been in the news. You guys have a lot of different kinds of members, right? Did any of your members take the opposing side of it? And how did you negotiate trying to hopefully make everybody happy? Well, Jay, that's a great question. And in any trade association, it's going to be hard to get universal support for a position. And so this was actually a unique instance where the vast, vast majority of companies in our membership supported our position that these tariffs are bad. There were a couple companies, First Solar among them, went public with their feelings that the tariffs were a good idea and they were opposed to our position on this. But aside from that one notable exception, there's been widespread and almost universal support for our position that the tariffs are the wrong way to go. Despite their disagreements with your association's position on that, were you able to make up or did they go separate ways? It's a good question. It's a hard one to answer. As members, we want to support them in any way that we can. We certainly want to have that good relationship with First Solar, and I think it is a work in progress. Now that the decision has been made, Dan, what is SIA's position on tariffs? I mean, what is your position on how to move forward? Well, there's a couple things going on. The tariff decision has essentially been made. There is a process for granting exceptions to certain products. And right now, the U.S. Trade Representative is accepting comments for those exceptions. So if you make a certain product that's a little bit different or that has unique circumstances or that can really help boost jobs if they're not tariffed, then companies can file for an exception. For example, if they don't make a product here in the United States, then there's a question as to whether there should be a tariff on that sort of product when there is no real competition or no foreseeable competition. We think the tariffs were a bad idea. So to the extent that an exception could relieve the impact, that would be a good thing. There's also a midterm review where the president and the administration have an opportunity after a couple years to take a look at whether the tariffs are the right way to go and what the impacts have been. And then the way the tariff was structured is that it goes down 5% each year for the next four. So it's 30 this year, 25 next year, 20 in 2020, and 15 in 2021 when the tariff ends altogether. So the idea is that if you're an American manufacturer, you have about a five-year period to really get in order, right? Well, the sad truth is if you're an aspiring manufacturer in the U.S., you need to be moving now to benefit from this tariff because there's a lead time associated with building out capacity. And even Solar World, that group, they had some arguments. Do you think, as these two companies have argued, that the 
domestic solar manufacturing sector is poised for a resurgence. Yeah, it's not. It's not. And they know it. It's not. And, you know, there was a statistic thrown around that the tariff would add more than 140,000 new jobs, again, through manufacturing. And I take it that that's also, you think, misguided, right? Yeah. You know who developed that statistic? It wasn't a legitimate research firm. There was no researcher that was willing to put his or her name behind that. That number was dreamed up and distributed by the law firm for either Cineva or Solar World. I can't remember, but it's pure rubbish. And they know that as well. I'm curious if you think the bigger issues, the need for solar manufacturers to be competitive with foreign markets or the need for solar to remain affordable compared to other energy options out there. That's got to be CS big driver, right? Is you want to be competitive as the solar industry with other forms of generation here, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. If we can't compete with other forms of generation, we don't have any manufacturing. <laughs> There's no point in manufacturing panels if we can't sell them cheaper than nuclear and coal and you know natural gas and wind. First and foremost, we have to be able to compete in the market. Yeah. And I just want to be clear, we want American manufacturing. There are a number of companies that have talked about expanding capacity and we support American manufacturers. We want them as part of our membership, but they have to be able to compete. Otherwise, we won't be building projects. That's a good point. You know, and one of the things I was going to ask you is, look, one of the main benefits of solar is that it's domestic production of energy, right? So when you want everything to be hopefully produced here, I could see where that's kind of a conflict in a way. It is. It is. Again, first and foremost, we want to produce electricity made from the sun and generated here in the United States. Dan, it appears that this won't be the only tariff issue out there. I mean, this interview is really happening at an interesting time, especially what's going on between us and China. It seems like something is. is breaking every hour. I'm sure your heads have to be spinning over there in Washington. How are some of these other tariffs possibly affecting you guys and your companies? The steel and aluminum tariffs are not positive from our perspective. We use a lot of steel and aluminum in our racking systems. So the systems that you place the panel inside these racking either aluminum or steel frames. And that's a good portion of the cost of our project. So there again, if you're going to impose tariffs on that, that's going to hurt the solar industry. And then the Section 301 tariffs, which is the ones that are of these thousand products or whatever the number is that just came out this week, we really haven't had a chance to evaluate the full impact of that. But you're right that the climate surrounding trade is tenuous right now. And I don't think that China has fully made known their plans to retaliate. And so it started with solar. Solar trade case was an indicator of things to come. But where it goes from now is uncertain and probably a little bit scary. No doubt. Let's talk a little bit about you guys as an association. What else besides constantly monitoring the news every second of the day about these tariffs is on your agenda? Well, setting the trade case aside, solar energy is an incredibly evolving industry. And I don't think that people really understand what it means for solar to be cost competitive with natural gas and wind and much more favorable in terms of price than nuclear and coal. What it means is that solar is going to walk into the sort of 
prime spot for new electricity generation. In fact, in 2016, we were the largest source of new electricity capacity in the U.S. And last year, we were second to natural gas. So when we think about our electricity of the future, solar is going to play, if not the biggest role, a very, very large role. So what that means as a trade association is that where we have been a fraction of the budget of other energy sources in terms of Washington representation, we're going to need to grow and be among the big boys in terms of lobbying, advocacy, communications. And so we're spending a lot of time right now spelling out what that would look like and articulating what that's going to take with our membership and with the solar community more broadly. Dan, I've talked a lot lately this year about technologies that are able to store or maybe defer energy, everything from the battery backup stuff to even air conditioners that create ice at night and then run in the daytime. Stuff that can defer the peak hours and help give renewables that are a little bit more intermittent a chance to thrive in a way so that they're able to smooth out that curve of demand. Is there any yeah. technology that you guys are really keen on that you think would be good complements for solar? That kind of goes back to the beginning of our conversation where we talked about America really being a leader in innovation. And storage is one example and a big example where this innovation innovation is going to allow solar to really take a starring role in terms of our future electricity and because it evens out some of that intermittency. As far as other technologies, there's a lot of different things being looked at. The key in terms of storage, one key is making sure that we can produce storage at a vast scale at competitive costs. We're well on the way in some places we've actually achieved that. So more than probably some new technology that hasn't kind of emerged yet, it's really maximizing the efficiency of producing technologies that we already know about. And 10, 20 years from now, who knows? There's a lot of different things being looked at that could, again, change the game for solar energy. But we're pretty focused on what we can do over the next five years. And that involves improving efficiencies more than inventing new products. Sure. I'm going to get slightly political here. Anything else you wish the administration was doing for the solar industry? You know, I think that one of the amazing things about this solar story is that we, like a lot of mature and competitive fuels, we probably do a little bit better if the federal government just leaves us alone. <laughs> So I'm from the government. I'm here to help, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So we fit right into the sort of sweet spot for Republican principles of being cost competitive, of innovating, of working in a market where we actually can win. And so if we're just allowed to compete on a level playing field, and you could talk all day about subsidies of different fuels, they all get subsidized in one form or another. On a level playing field, solar can compete. So we're not asking for much new from the federal government. And if the market were left to work and there weren't tariffs and taxes, we think we'd do pretty well. Not asking the Trump administration for much other than don't stand in our way. Got it. And hey, I got one quick inside baseball question to ask you. I came from the carbon capture groups back in Texas, and I have a guy who works there in D.C. And he was saying during the election in 2016, all the Washington associations like Thea and everybody else in town was essentially loading up people who had a relationship with the Clintons. And then when Trump was elected, all those lobbyists, they were no good. So there was a long period last year where everyone was scrambling to find government 
government relations guys who could talk to this administration. I didn't know if you had any stories about that or you could verify that. I thought that was an interesting dynamic. I've had a long career working with a lot of different trade associations, and there is no question that you have to have lobbyists who are well-placed with people on the inside of any administration. And so in a Republican administration, Republican lobbyists are going to do great. Democratic lobbyists also can do well in terms of playing defense, but you need those relationships. And the trade case was a perfect example where you really need those relationships. So well before the election, we had Trent Lott's firm working for us, and he continued to work for us into the trade case. So we were pretty well positioned. I think that one good thing about not having a huge budget as a trade association is that we couldn't afford to spend a lot of money on the wrong kind of lobbyists. So I, can relate. I think we avoided that mess, but there is no question that there was a hell of a lot of scrambling in Washington the day after the election trying to get friends of Trump signed on. That was definitely a thing that happened. <laughs> I'm sure there's going to be a book at some point. Because look, essentially the Bushes had been the stars for a long time. And, and you're talking about a guy who's not part of the system. Right. I can only imagine, right? Well, that's true. And, you know, we did feel good that we had Republican representation. But having Republican representation and having someone with a close connection to Trump can be two different things. And so it's a very untraditional set of circumstances that we find ourselves in in regard to that. <laughs> well, thank you for giving everybody a window into what that looks like. Hey, Dan, I'm going to finish up. It's a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies. And if you want to say, hey, these are just Dan's thoughts on these technologies, that's fine. Well, Jay, I love the idea. Given the fact that I'm going to have to come up with one word for everything, I do want to say that it's just me, uh, Dan Witten, blurting things out. And I don't <laughs> want necessarily to be held accountable to SIA or its membership. So I'll do my best. And if I fall off message, it's just because I got caught by surprise. <laughs> Fair enough. Every, I think everyone can respect that. We're only human here. Okay. These are all Dan's thoughts. All right, starting with natural gas. Complicated. Crude oil. Necessary, but not clean. Nuclear. Expensive. Coal. Dirty. Wind. Good partners. Solar. Awesome. <laughs> Fun to be in this industry. Absolutely. Biofuels. Uncertain. Hydroelectric. Well-established, limited upside. Geothermal. Potential. And I'll add a better trade association than they are. <laughs> Glad to hear it. <laughs> Electric vehicles. Promising. Energy efficiency. Necessary. And in a good way. We want it. And then finally, nuclear fusion. Above my intellectual capacity. <laughs> and probably way out there. <laughs> All right. Dan Witten, Solar Energy Industries Association. Thank you so much for your time. Jay, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it and look forward to talking to you again. That was Dan Witten, VP of Communications for SIA, the Solar Energy Industries Association. For the record, I've tried to reach out to Suniva repeatedly. I even had a friend in Atlanta drive by their offices. LinkedIn shows they have over 100 employees. No offense, but when your business development line goes straight to voicemail, your company has bigger problems than Chinese competitors. SolarWorld at least had a human on the other end of the line, but they're currently undergoing buyout negotiations as their spokesperson 
Waxman put it. I want to thank Dan for being so generous with his time, as well as Alex Hobson in the communications department. This is an incredible association. All guests are sent the raw and completed recordings the week of release. So far, no complaints. You can find pictures and more at Host Energy on Instagram and online at energy-cast.com. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 34. Be sure to join us next week when we explore why everything's bigger in Texas, both above and below ground. Until then, I'm Jay Dowenhauer. We'll see you next time.